Hey, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, our team combs through the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and then provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. And if you'd like to support us or get yourself some CME credits, we offer those through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the Valiant, Alex Chen, Aaron Lacey, Megan Breed, and Sam Parnell. The first article from this week was titled Transient Ischemic Attack out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Whenever I think about TIAs, I think about some time that I spent working up in a rural emergency medicine department where we'd video call a neurologist anytime a patient came in with stroke-like symptoms because we didn't have one on site. And then the neurologist over the video call would make the decision of whether or not to thrombolize the patient. It was pretty stressful, actually. So TIAs are pretty much strokes, but it's kind of more like a test run before you get to the real deal, since up to 25% of strokes are preceded by TIAs. This makes it a really important topic, so let's review them and so that we're all up to date. Many will remember that TIAs used to be defined by their time frame, that being symptoms lasting less than 24 hours and typically less than one hour in most cases. New definitions are based on imaging results, Specifically, that negative imaging means it was a TIA. On that note, the imaging of choice will be diffusion-weighted MRI of the brain, which should be done immediately if not ordered five minutes ago already. If that's negative, though, and suspicion remains high for a stroke, then perfusion-weighted imaging can also be done, and this adds a bit of sensitivity. When assessing the arteries with imaging, your options are carotid ultrasounds, CT angiograms, and MR angiograms. Any patient with carotid stenosis more than 50% earns consideration for a referral for carotid endarterectomy or a stenting. We can't just get scans, though prompt treatment is imperative. Patients should receive a 300 milligram dose of aspirin as soon as possible, followed by dual antiplatelet therapy for the first 21 days. Using 300 milligrams of clopidogrel as a loading dose, followed by 75 milligrams daily, along with 75 to 100 milligrams of aspirin daily, which should be continued for the next 90 days. And just like we looked at the carotids for the source, we also need to look at the heart as well. Patients should get the bare minimum of an ECG and then consider getting a Holter study and echocardiography as well. And we do all of this because the most important part of treating a TIA is prevention of reoccurrence. The episode itself, by definition, will resolve essentially without harm, but it's a promise of disaster to come in the future. The strongest predictors of new vascular events are carotid stenosis, atrial fibrillation, multiple ischemic spots on diffusion-weighted imaging, and an ABCD2 score of 6 or 7. And since they're already there and your patients probably just had the pants scared off of them, a gentle reminder about eating a healthy diet, smoking sensation, blood pressure control, and diabetes control can go a long way. In a spoonful, TIAs are the warning signs for future strokes and are defined by a lack of confirmed stroke on imaging. Load them up with antiplatelets and then address the causes. Next is the second article titled Comparison of Computed Tomography Use and Mortality in Severe Pediatric Blunt Trauma Patients out of a Pediatric Level 1 Trauma Center versus Adult Level 1 or Level 2 or pediatric level 2 trauma centers. Really rolls off the tongue, eh? 
out of the Journal of Pediatric Emergency Care. Radiation exposure causes cancer. Not right away, of course, but it increases your risk. So with enough time and enough radiation, it's actually bound to happen. This risk is much worse in children because they have a lot longer to live and because their cells are a lot busier. For this reason, it's important to be very selective in imaging in the pediatric population. At the same time, we don't want to miss anything by not getting the scan, so really it's, it's, it's kind of a hard call. As a side note, the same principles apply to sun exposure, by the way, so, you know, wear sunscreen. Anyways, this was a retrospective analysis of pediatric trauma patients with an injury severity score of at least 15 or greater, which means they had severe trauma. And they looked and compared a level 1 pediatric trauma center to a level 2 pediatric trauma center, as well as to a level 1 or a level 2 adult trauma center. And they were looking at mortality as the primary outcome. At the level 1 pediatric trauma center, 40% of these children got abdominal CTs, and 22% got chest CTs. This is in contrast to the other centers, where 45% got abdominal CTs, that's 5% more, and 35% got chest CTs, that's 13% more. So that is to say that adult centers and level 2 trauma centers scan children much more than the level 1 pediatric trauma center, except in the case of head CTs, which were the same among all groups. But they scan more so what? The real important thing here is that even though they scanned more, the mortality between the patients treated at the pediatric center and the adult centers was not significantly different. On top of that, even length of stay and ventilator-free days was also the same. This tells us that a trauma pan scan in pediatric populations isn't necessary in most cases. More scanning didn't lead to better outcomes. In fact, we're putting our patients at risk for long-term bad outcomes. So in a spoonful, children suffering from severe blunt trauma had less CT imaging done at a level 1 pediatric trauma center compared to a level 2 center or a level 1 or level 2 adult center without a difference in mortality. Now the third article, titled Association Between Oral Corticosteroid Bursts and Severe Adverse Events, a Nationwide Population-Based Cohort Study out of the Annals of Internal Medicine. Steroids are kind of like one of those magic drugs that's given for a lot of things. It can sure give a lot of patients sort of that pick-me-up feeling that they're looking for, too. So we give it out a lot. A study in Taiwan over a three-year period showed that 25% of the population received at least one steroid burst. There are risks to this, though. A study out of the BMJ in 2017 showed an increased risk of adverse events after just short steroid bursts. These events included some heavy hitters like sepsis, venous thromboembolism, and even fractures. And that's not the only study to show risks either, because, well, here we have another one. These authors looked at three predefined adverse events following oral steroid bursts, where a burst was a duration of less than 14 days. The adverse events that they chose were GI bleeds, sepsis, and heart failure. Based on their review of the National Health Insurance Database in Taiwan, the authors determined incident rates per 1,000 person years, and all steroid doses were converted to prednisone equivalents for comparison. So the incidence rates per 1,000 person years among participants prescribed steroid bursts were for GI bleeds was 27.1, compared to 16.8 without steroids. For sepsis, it was 1.5, compared to 1.4 without, and lastly was heart failure at 1.3, compared to 0.4 without. Looking at outcomes in the short term, we see a pretty big increase in incidences. 
with incident rate ratios for the first 5 to 30 days of 1.8 for GI bleeds, 1.99 for sepsis, and 2.37 for heart failure. So the risks of these three outcomes were essentially doubled in the first 30 days. On top of that, these rates were still increased at the 90-day mark as well. For this study, the median dose and duration of steroids was 10 milligrams over three days on patients with a mean age of 38 years old. And that sounds like pretty lightweight dosing compared to what can be given to a lot of COPD patients that come through the ED. So when a spoonful, the incidence of GI bleeding, sepsis, and heart failure was increased even with short steroid bursts defined as oral steroids given for less than 14 days. Now the fourth article titled Dethamexazone in Hospitalized Patients with COVID-19, a preliminary report out of the New England Journal of Medicine. I do not need to tell you the effect that COVID-19 has had on the world up until now. Millions are sick. Hundreds of thousands have been killed. Shutting down economies and even changing the way that we think about and approach the functioning of society as a whole. I mean, come on, did you ever think that one day you would be able to see your parents or your grandparents, but you wouldn't be able to embrace them for fear that you yourself might make them fatally sick? No, most people didn't think that either. But most people aren't made severely sick or even sick at all. But there's still an all too large proportion of the population that gets severely ill, leading to respiratory failure and even death. This has led to widespread fear and doctors feverishly searching for something that we can use to treat this newfound disease. We've turned over as many rocks as seems reasonable and even a lot of rocks that are not so reasonable, just searching for something that can decrease the mortality in our severely affected patients and hopefully turn the tide on this global pandemic. So if you think about it, if it's acute respiratory distress syndrome that's killing a lot of our patients, then we already know that this is an immune-driven disease. Could we then maybe dampen the immune response with glucocorticoids and add a much-needed tool to our arsenal against SARS-CoV-2? So on to the article. The recovery trial was a controlled, open-label, pragmatic trial of 6,425 patients hospitalized with COVID-19, comparing 28-day mortality for patients randomly assigned to receive oral or intravenous dexamethasone at a dose of 6 mg daily for up to 12 days versus just usual care. Overall, patients who received dexamethasone had lower incidence of death compared with usual care at 22.9% versus usual care at 25.7%. So that's a rate ratio of 0.83, taking that to mean that there's a 17% decrease. That's actually pretty good. And that's just all comers too. The greatest benefits were in the sickest patients and those that had the longest duration of symptoms, specifically those who had ventilator support with a rate ratio of 0.64, mortality rates dropping from 41.4% to 29.3%. And the other group was those who received oxygen therapy without mechanical ventilation for a reduction from 26.2% to 23.3%. However, for patients who did not need any respiratory support, there was no benefit and even sudden signals suggesting that there was possible harm in giving steroids. Perhaps suppressing the immune system a bit too early simply allowed for more viral replication. For secondary outcomes, dexamethasone was also associated with a shorter duration of hospital stay, a higher chance of being discharged alive, and less progression to mechanical ventilation. Normally, of course, I would caution against very positive results from a single study. 
However, with a plausible pathophysiological explanation for the benefit, and honestly, a desperate need for treatments, this study seems like a slam dunk to me. In a spoonful, the use of dexamethasone was associated with lower mortality rates for patients hospitalized with COVID-19 receiving invasive mechanical ventilation or supplemental oxygen therapy, and there was no benefit for patients who did not require initial respiratory support. Lastly, the fifth article titled COVID-19, 10 Things I Wish I'd Known Some Months Ago, out of the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine. Hindsight is 2020, and boy, oh boy, do we already have a lot to say about how 2020 has been going down. This aptly named article compiled a list of 10 things that would have been nice to know before, well, let's just say something hit a fan and it didn't smell so great. Here we have the summary of those 10 things. Number one, ICU crisis planning is a lot of work and of the utmost importance. Being ready both physically and mentally for a surge that may surpass your capacity could have saved a lot of gray hairs and probably about as many lives. Number two, start training residents and non-ICU staff in advance and establishing strong peer support. Number three, it was a new disease, but our old markers were still useful. Most patients presented with a high CRP and low procalcitonin. As well, decreasing temperature kinetics and CRP tended to point towards the ability to tolerate early extubation. On that note, D-dimers led us to number four, the hidden problem with hypercoagulation and thrombosis. Higher rates of thrombosis and PE have been seen in these patients, and it needs to be taken very seriously. Number five, cardiac involvement isn't off the hook either, particularly in patients with pre-existing disease. If you see an elevated troponin, be worried. Number six, pharmacological treatment was going to be a total mess. Most therapeutic strategies were reflex-based and not research-based. Number six, don't intubate early. Use non-invasive ventilation to stave off intubation as long as possible, and then only prone when intubated. Once intubated, customize ventilation to the patient's lung's mechanical properties, either L-type, low elastance, low driving pressure, or H-type, high elastance, high driving pressure. Number eight, ethical preparation is important for when capacity has been overwhelmed and difficult triage decisions need to be made. It won't make it any easier, but it will make it more fair. Number nine, information overload was a huge problem. There was advice coming from everywhere and without any of this advice really being evidence-based. And so that made it even more difficult when it was a barrage from every direction. Number 10, post-ICU follow-up is as important as escalating ICU equipment and personnel. The patient's journey is far from over after they left the ICU, and this cannot be neglected. In a spoonful, we've learned a lot this year which serves to remind us just how much we still have left to learn. So what did we learn today? Let's do a rapid review of the points we covered. Number one, TIAs are scary, but your patients will recover. The most important thing to do is try to stop it from happening again when maybe it won't be so reversible. Number two, more scans does not mean more better, certainly not in kids. A level one pediatric trauma center was able to scan less and not compromise patient care. So we have something to strive for. Next, number three, a short course of steroids might have seemed like it would do little harm, but we might be wrong about that. This study showed that it increases patients' risks for GI bleeds, sepsis, and even heart failure for as long as the next 90 days. Next is number four, for patients sick with COVID-19 who are receiving mechanical ventilation or supplemental oxygen, then dexamethasone shows very promising results for reducing mortality. And number five, COVID has a been a wake-up call for the medical system. We covered 10 things that we learned this year that it would have been nice to know sooner. 
And that's it for this week, everybody. That is all. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. As you know, our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're helping you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. And if you'd be so kind, please head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating and a review. I know I'd certainly appreciate it. Thank you again.